Morning, everyone. Welcome to Restoration. Uh, my name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you all this morning. As uh, Dan and Jenny Lynn said, whether you're just visiting with us and here to see family or you're checking our church out or you're a longtime member here, we're glad to be worshiping with you. If you're watching online, thanks for joining us uh, that way also. Um, I haven't been with you for a couple Sundays. Two Sundays ago, I was had the flu. Dan preached for me, so I appreciate him taking over uh, at the last minute. Um, and then this last weekend, we were traveling a little bit for Thanksgiving, seeing family. And this is actually one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, I love this, this time, the week of Thanksgiving, all the way through the week of Christmas and New Year's. I love, you know, the food, the parties, presents, decorations, uh, as I love to remind Jenny Lynn, I love the snow. Uh, as a sports fan, this is a great season of the year with football and basketball, college and pro in full swing, even a bonus this year of uh, the World Cup for myself as a, as a soccer player. Um, it's a lot of fun. This is one of my favorite times of the year. I know that's the case for many of you. It's the case for a lot of our culture. We love the holiday season. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we love the holiday season. But I think one of those reasons, at the heart of a lot of our reasons, is that it's a distraction. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but we love days off. We love holiday parties that distract us from our daily work routine. We love holiday food and how that's an acceptable distraction from our diets. I was at Thanksgiving all week. No one made one comment about a diet while we ate lots of food. We love the excessive spending that's kind of accepted in our culture. We like to forget about maybe the debt that we already have and the fact that we're putting all this on a credit card and have to pay it off in a couple months. We really feel almost like this season of life is a little bit of a different world. Schedules are different. There's festivities. There's relaxation. There's fun. And again, a lot of that is, is a good thing. That's not necessarily bad. But we also know that deep down, distractions are only temporary. Distractions don't completely cover up reality. They don't completely cover up that we have presents and holiday parties and family gatherings, but there are messy relationships in our families. We go to these parties and there are shadows of people who have passed away and aren't there this year. Or people that aren't invited anymore, or maybe don't come anymore, or people who are there that we don't want to talk to. There's apparent freedom to eat and spend as much as we want, but then on December 26th or on New Year's, we make resolutions to make up for the excess weight we gained or the excess debt on our credit cards. I say all that to remind us that the season of distraction doesn't erase that we still live in a broken world. We're still broken people. We're still surrounded by other broken people. And that's why we start a sermon series every year at this time, as Dan said, called Advent. This is the first of four Sundays of what Christians have always called the Advent season, regardless of what you may have experienced uh, in the culture with Advent calendars and those sort of things. Advent isn't just intended to be an expanded celebration of Christmas. It's actually a season that's both connected but also disconnected from Christmas. 
You know, in the past, Dan has shared as he introduced this series that the word Advent literally means a coming or an arrival. And the church has typically emphasized during this season the arrival of Jesus on Christmas Day, but also, and more importantly, the arrival of Jesus at the end of time when he's going to come back. Because we live in a dark and broken world, and so what we need is not just a distraction that's temporary, but we actually need hope. And so Advent is honest about reality. It's honest about the brokenness and the darkness of the world that we live in, but it has a trajectory towards hopefulness. It has a trajectory toward things being fixed. You know, we talk a lot here at Restoration about this idea of the now and the not yet. This idea that Jesus' work on earth is finished, but not finished. That his kingdom has come, but it's still coming. And so Advent is the season of the now and the not yet. So during this series, we're going to be honest about the brokenness of the world, while at the same time being hopeful about Jesus' future return, celebrating some of the work that Jesus has already begun to do in healing this world. So as we uh, enter this series, we're going to call it this year, Advent for the Brokenhearted. And we're going to be looking together at Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to spend, again, four weeks in that. That's a good time also to remind you that here at Restoration, we have a daily Bible reading plan. And actually, next Saturday is the first chapter of Isaiah in that daily Bible reading plan. So if you've not been keeping up with that plan this year, that's okay. It's actually a two-year plan, so feel free to jump in at any time. This is actually a great time now that we're doing Isaiah to jump into that study. If you feel either behind on it or you haven't gotten into it, it's a great chance uh, to do that. Now, the reason that we're going to use Isaiah chapter 40 is because in the book of Isaiah, the Israelites, God's people like us, are in a season of brokenness, a season of brokenheartedness. And so there are promises in this chapter that had meaning for them in their brokenheartedness that also translates for us in ours. Because despite all those holiday distractions, I know that many of you, probably most of you, are coming here this morning brokenhearted in some way. Now, maybe you're so distracted this morning that you're not feeling the weight of that. Maybe it's hard to feel, but I want you to focus for just a moment. I'm going to read the chapter for us, in a, or the verses for us in a second, but I want you to think about what's below the surface this morning in your own heart. Where are some of the ways that you're hurting? Where are some of the ways that you're brokenhearted? That you're feeling angry? That you're feeling sad? Where that, the brokenness of the world is weighing down on you. Where are some of those places? Because it's important for us to recognize that over these few weeks. If this passage really is going to do its work on us. If we really want God's word and the promises that we're going to read about. If we really want those to hit home with us. It's going to be important for us to see the places in our lives where that matters. So think about where you're feeling that brokenness as we turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, it's on page 599 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to have it up on the screen. We're going to look at the first five verses 
this morning. So I'm going to read that and reflect on those places where you might be feeling brokenness and how these words might speak to you. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So a little bit of historical context of what's happening here in chapter 40. Isaiah is a book of prophecy, right? So Isaiah is predicting events that are going to happen, and then he's speaking into those. So Israel is going to be taken into exile. In the chapter before this, chapter 39, Isaiah had said from the Lord, Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house... And which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So there's this prediction that's been given to Israel that because of their sin, because of the rebellion against God by their nation, they're going to be taken into exile. And so as we move into chapter 40, Isaiah is anticipating the way in which the Israelites are going to experience that exile. The brokenheartedness that they're going to be living under. Torn out of their land. Their families, their future under threat. All of these promises that God has given to them that they've clung to so tightly throughout their lives is now under threat. Their very identity as God's people is at risk. So you can imagine the amount of stress they would be experiencing as they enter into exile. Uncertain afraid, hopeless, brokenhearted, scared of what the future might hold for them and their family. Now, for some of the people, the Israelites that were reading this, the sin wasn't the result of their own actions. It was the result of the brokenness of their nation. But there were some people reading this who it was their own sin that had led them into rebellion against God and led to their exile. And so that relates to every person sitting in here this morning. For some of us, the brokenheartedness that we feel is a result of our own sin. But for many of us, it's not. It's just a result of the brokenness of this world or the brokenness of other people and the sin of other people. But either way, we can come this morning and feel that same type of fear and uncertainty and hopelessness that the readers of these verses would have been feeling. All of us have those memories burned into us, traumatic things that have happened to us, moments of hopelessness and brokenness that we've experienced. I know for me, one of the, some of the, the most significant moments of feeling hopeless in my life have been around death. The first time that I felt that was when I was in middle school. There was a classmate who lived down the street from me, and he was playing at a, at a house that was being built in our neighborhood, and he slipped, and he fell, and he hit his head, and he was in a coma, but the prognosis was not uh, good at all. They were keeping us updated in school 
over the speaker just giving us updates as much as they could. But I remember sitting in class and I just remember the weight of that hopelessness, having no ability to do anything, not understanding what was happening. You had a, middle, a, a, a building full of middle school students who likely had not had anyone ever die that they didn't know who was just elderly or disconnected from them. No one their age, probably. Not to mention the adults in the building that aren't trained to help middle school students process potential death of a classmate. So we're all sitting there feeling helpless and I remember when they came over the school speaker and and told us that he had passed away. Um, there was a girl who knew him really well, and I remember her screaming in the class. And I can I can still picture where I was sitting in the class, and I can still hear that sound. And that's how powerful hopelessness and brokenness and sin are for us that even 30 years later, I can still hear that in my mind. I can still picture where I was. I can still feel that even now. And I think each one of us has moments like that in our lives that we can look back on and think about how hopeless it felt, how broken things felt, how fearful we were, these experiences of death and suffering and abuse and evil, sometimes that are our own doing, but oftentimes that are outside of our control completely. That's how the Israelites come into chapter 40 this morning. That's how we come into Advent this morning, despite all the distractions that we have and the, the festive things that we're doing and the fun that we're having, that below the surface is the reality of that broken world. But that's why God gives us the words of chapter 40 this morning. In these first five verses, God offers us, I think, two things that we absolutely have to have in order to survive the brokenness of this world. He offers us the promise of comfort and the promise of hope. Now, we spent a lot of time this morning introducing some of these big ideas of, of Advent and of Isaiah and the, the context, but I want to spend a couple minutes on those two ideas in these first five verses, comfort and hope. Let's look at comfort first. Look back at verses one and two. God begins with these great words. He says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. And I want to see a couple things in these verses. First, in Hebrew here, the word order is actually really, really important. You don't sense that in the English, but it's worth mentioning because in a normal Hebrew sentence, the verb comes first. But this is the way this reads in the Hebrew, actually. Your God says, my people comfort. Yes, comfort. The first words that God says are your God says. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime I experience the kind of brokenness that we're talking about, the first thing that I ask is, where's God? What's he doing? Is he still there? Does he care? Is he involved? And in Hebrew, the first thing God says is, your God says this. He's saying, I'm still there. Even in the midst of the brokenness, I'm still there. And I'm not just God, I'm your God. I'm still with you and I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm your God 
And that sets the stage for the whole rest of this chapter. Because I'm your God, because I'm with you, I can offer you comfort and hope. Notice that comfort's repeated twice there. This is a clear emphasis of God. He's using intentional words here to catch our attention. When we get hurt, when we experience brokenness, when we're injured emotionally, physically, what do we long for? We long for comfort, for someone to be there, for someone to hear us, for someone to wrap their arms around us, for someone to hold us. When my five-year-old falls down and scrapes his knee, the first thing he does is doesn't go to his knee. He grabs me and wants me to hold him. You look at photos after some kind of traumatic event in our world today. You see them all over social media, but what do you see? You see people hugging each other. You see people holding each other, crying with each other, people comforting each other. There's something hardwired into us as human beings that longs for comfort. You know, there was a 2014 uh, study at Carnegie Mellon about comfort and how it impacted our ability to respond to illness. You know, these scientists who conducted the study said that we already knew that the experience of stress or conflict would make a person more susceptible to the transmission of sickness. They were curious whether the opposite, comfort, social support, physical hugs and encouragement, would that do the opposite? Would it actually help protect a person from sickness? In other words, does comfort impact our bodies? And they took 400 healthy adults. They studied how frequently they were comforted by trusted people. Then they exposed them to the common cold and they put them in quarantine. And guess what the results showed? It showed that the people that regularly experienced a high level of comfort and physical embrace by trusted people had reduced risk of infection. And when they did get sick, the severity of their sickness was less. And so what they learned was that the ongoing experience of comfort from trusted people actually helped the physical body be more protected against illness. And so the desire and the need for comfort is actually hardwired into us as human beings by God. We long for comfort in the midst of brokenness. And so first God reminds his people that he's their God, that he's with them, that he's on their side. And then he says, I'm going to bring you comfort. And so that's true for us today as God's people. These same promises are true for you and I this morning. God is your God and he longs to comfort you. Now the problem is God can't hug me, right? I think about some of these experiences. I think about the nearness of God and sometimes he doesn't feel that close and sometimes I wish he could hug me but he's not actually there to do that and so where how does he comfort me what form does that comfort take well verse 2 I think gives us a little insight to that God brings comfort to us actually through one another he says to Isaiah Isaiah you speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Notice all the language there that it's Isaiah who's to speak to the people on God's 
behalf. So we'll notice a few things in these verses. First, there's an honesty about the reality of sin and brokenness. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God isn't shy about recognizing where the problem comes from. The problem comes from sin. Again, sometimes the sin of the world and the sin of other people around us, but a lot of times our own sin. And so there's a need, there's a call to one another to invite each other into honesty about sin and honesty about repentance. But that's not the end of God's story with us. In verse 2, there's also pardon for sin. Her iniquity is pardoned. We're supposed to tell each other that we're forgiven. There's tenderness. Speak tenderly, he says. There's our identity. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The people of Israel are in exile. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. But Jerusalem is a reminder to them of who they are, their identity as God's people. All of this is the way in which we're supposed to speak to each other God's comfort. All these reminders come through members of God's family. God commands someone else to speak. And so this place, his body, is the place where we comfort each other through hard times. We remind each other to repent. We comfort each other as we go through these times of brokenness, hopelessness. We tell each other that our warfare is over. We remind each other of the gospel and these truths that we've been reading about this morning. Now, I know for some of you who might have experienced this kind of brokenness in the church, that might be really hard to hear. But I want to encourage you that as someone who has also been hurt and abused by those inside the church, that it's God that stands behind those promises. It's God that is making, that is speaking the comfort through others. And so it's worth fighting to find a place where God's people are going to speak these words to you. You know, as, as the leaders, as staff, as elders of the church, we're going to fight as much as we can to make this that kind of place for you, but it really is worth fighting to have a place where people are going to speak these kind of words to you in the midst of brokenness. But the problem is brokenness is still out there. I can come here on Sunday morning, I can come to Bible study and community group and be in fellowship with others and hear these words spoken to me, but I still go out into a world that's broken. And so is there hope after the comfort? We'll look at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 begins with this famous prophecy to prepare the way of the Lord, to prepare for the Lord to arrive. This is a promise that is repeated over and over again in the scripture. This promise of hopeful arrival of God at some point. That he's going to enter into this wilderness is used often as a metaphor for this world that we live in of brokenness. That God's going to enter into the wilderness where we are. Now several hundred years later, John the Baptist takes this verse and he applies it to Jesus. Because John saw Jesus as the ultimate answer to this question about hope. Does God see us in the wilderness? 
Does God see us in the hopelessness and the brokenness? Does he care enough to do something about it? Those questions find their answer in Jesus. Jesus' arrival into our world, God becoming man, walking in the wilderness with us, experiencing the suffering and the brokenness that we experience is the turning point in the history of the universe. Because what do verses 4 and 5 say is going to happen when the Lord arrives? It says that valleys will be lifted up, mountains and hills will be made low, uneven ground will become level, rough places will be made plain, and everyone will be able to see. Now, what does all that mean? What do all those metaphors mean? Well, if you were here with us this summer, you might remember that we went through the Psalms of Ascent. If you weren't here, what we talked about was the Psalms of Ascent were these songs that the Israelites would sing as they walked through the wilderness to God's house. And you remember we talked about some of the context of that, and we said that they would be traveling through this rough wilderness, these rough places. They would be down in these valleys where they were very vulnerable. They would look up at these hills where there were threats from robbers in the wilderness that may attack them. These metaphors are intended for the Israelites to immediately think about their journey through the wilderness, through the rough places, through the valleys, through the hills, to God's house. And so what God is saying to us is just like the Israelites wandered through that kind of wilderness and just like the wilderness of your life through the brokenness and the hopelessness of sin, just like those experiences, they're going to be redeemed. There aren't going to be rough places anymore. The hills are going to be made flat. The valleys are going to be raised up. You're going to be able to see all the way to God's house. A clear line of sight to his glory. There's not going to be, there's not going to be threats from the hills. There's not going to be vulnerability from the valleys. That's what's coming. That's the hope for us as we wander through the wilderness. When Jesus came into the wilderness with us, when he was incarnate and brought into this world, he started that work. We don't always get to see it clearly, but the hills are being lowered. The valleys are being raised up. That is happening. The promise of it being finished is certain. And that's because Jesus rose from the dead. He took the worst of the wilderness, the worst of suffering and brokenness, the worst of hopelessness, and he rose from the dead. The world threw its best punch at Jesus, and he got back up. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance for us that there's hope at the end of the wilderness, that there's redemption, that there's restoration coming for us, even when we're brokenhearted, even when we're in the wilderness, even when we're in the rough places. So are you walking with that Jesus this morning? If you're not, we want to invite you to do that, to place your faith in him. If that's already true of you, then who are you walking with through the wilderness here? Who are the people that you're turning to and inviting in to help you? Who are the people that you're coming alongside of and encouraging in their brokenness? We're going to come to the table in a moment 
And we do that together for that very reason. That as we comfort one another and look forward in hope, we're reminded that we're not alone in that. That we're joined together with one another. So let me pray and then we'll come to the table together. Father, as we come today, the first Sunday of this Advent season this year, remind us of our unity with one another. Remind us that we are not just have the right to, but are commanded to speak these words of comfort to each other, to continue to point each other toward the hope of your work finished in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.